with the disciplines. So if you want to turn your notebooks over and, and we'll read through them. And then I wanted to share just a, a quick passage out of Ephesians 6 that kind of brings a little bit to what we're doing with our disciplines. So um, the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. To achieve this purpose, we look at three disciplines in our lives as women, the heart, the home, and ministry. The heart is when the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. The home is when the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Ministry is when, with her heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So hopefully by this time, these ideas are becoming familiar to all of us. Um, as I was thinking through this process of equipping and encouraging in my own life and in your lives as well, I was reminded of God's active part in this. We need to depend on his sovereign care and provision to stand firm and to hold fast as we seek to bring our hearts to his word. He does equip us and he does encourage us. And we're not left in the dark without instruction or without tools or without protection and other faithful ones to walk alongside. I was especially encouraged this week by Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Here we are reminded of the equipment that God gives us to put on daily gospel truths that will help us stand firm and protect us in this battle for godly living. So if you would turn to Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, I'll, I'll read that for you. Um, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So um, as I was looking through this, I saw there are two commandments in 10, verse 10 and 11. First, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And second, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 12, we see that there's a battle going on. 
<clears throat> excuse me, not of flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the evil of evil in the heavenly places. Um, and just as a side note, this passage does emphasize fighting against spiritual enemies, but we have to remember, even earlier in Ephesians, Paul talks about um, the hardness of our hearts, the deceitful desires and passions of our flesh that tempt us to sin also. So we can't just say, the devil made me do it. <laughs> we have to remember there is a battle going on within ourselves as well. Um, so whether Satan's using that or it's coming from our flesh, we, we still um, need to put on this armor that God has given us. Um, in verse 11 and 13, we see why we need to put on this armor, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and that we may be able to withstand in the evil day, to stand firm. How do we do this? In verse 14 through 17, um, Paul points out six pieces of armor wisely provided by our gracious God as we seek to shepherd our hearts and to step into our homes and our churches and into the world where Satan has been given temporary and limited power. We are to fasten on the belt of truth, having everything that will hinder us as we step into the fight closely bound and tucked in by truth helps us to keep a sincere commitment to the battle with no hypocrisy. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. <clears throat> this will protect our hearts as we step out each day, reminded of the righteousness that we now have because of the precious shed blood of Christ and the fact that we have died to him, or with him, sorry, and that we have a new heart that is declared righteous and secured by the Spirit. We are also to put on shoes as the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We can run confidently with the assurance and a peace-filled hope, knowing that God is on our side because of the grace of God shown in the gospels. In all circumstances, that means every circumstance, we are to take up the shield of faith. This is no ordinary shield. With it, we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one when he tries to twist our thoughts and with lies and tempt us to despair and to turn from trusting fully in God's word and promise. Um, and we are to take up the, the helmet of salvation to protect our heads so that we do not give in to doubts and discouragement about Christ's saving work in our lives. We remember that we are in Christ, and because of his obedient, humble, self-giving love for us, we are saved and justified. No longer are we slaves to our sinful thoughts and ways. They no longer have power over us, and we can be ready for every good deed of God that he has made for us in his gospel mission. Um, and we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth, the truthful word of God. It is powerful and alive, and it knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It will help us guard our thoughts and direct our thinking, informing our good deeds so that we can be ready to do the deeds that God has prepared for us, to step into our homes, into our church, into our schools, 
and like Eric will talk about in, into our small groups and into our workplaces, wherever God has us, we can step into those places with transforming gospel truth. We can pray at all times in the spirit with the genuine concern for our souls and our homes, the souls that are in our homes, and with wisdom and discernment from God of how to care for them well for his glory. We can step into our church being fully armed and having gospel truth to share and encourage others with. God is so gracious to equip us with this gospel armor. It is dependable and sure and exactly what we need. Why would I ever step into any circumstance without it? Oh yeah, it's because my heart is desperately sick. It's easily deceived and self-destructive. I am prone to forget. In the gospel primer, Milton Vincent comments that God would tell me to take up and put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that I do not automatically come into each day protected by the gospel. The fact that these commands imply that I am vulnerable to defeat and injury unless I seize upon the gospel and arm myself with it head to toe. What better way to do this than to preach the gospel to myself and to make it the obsession of my heart throughout each day? Let's pray. And then Eric is going to come and teach us. Um, dear Lord God, help us to take up and put on this gospel armor that you've so kindly given us. Forgive us for times that we foolishly think that we can handle the battle for our souls without it. Use this gospel truth in our lives for your glory as we seek to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with your word. Protect us with each piece as we seek to care for those in our homes and in our church and wherever you have us each day. Thank you that you've given us good deeds to do, Lord, and you've changed us and made us into people who can do this with your protection and your gospel truth. Amen. Good morning. It is, it's good to be here early on a morning. Uh, I'm kind of a, a morning person, and my, uh, my wife is not. Uh, when we were uh, first married, uh, we'd gone up to Sedona for our honeymoon. We spent a few nights up at a cabin and came back, and it's the first day of the week, and i am got to get up and I go to work, and so I, I wake up, and I'm showered, I've already got the coffee made, and then, and then she actually rolls and steps out of bed, and I'm like, she's awake, great, and I'm just like, hey, how was you, how'd you sleep, you're just chatting it up, and she's just like, what? Oh, you're one of those people, and then she said, you need to give me like 15 minutes, and so I waited patiently for 15 minutes, and then I was like, you know, chatty. So uh, my assumption is, since you guys were not here on Thursday when it's a little bit later, that you guys are all morning people too. <laughs> and and if you're not, there's more coffee back there. So uh, this morning we're going to be talking about discipline number three, and uh, specifically. Uh, the practice of biblical relationships. Um, 
we're going to be talking about the practice of biblical relationships within the local church. And the tool that we're going to use to do that is something called the one another's. If you've been a believer for any amount of time or been exposed to God's word, you've probably heard of the one another's. You perhaps even have studied the one another's. And so uh, the one another's are a tool. The one another's are a tool to survey scripture for how we are to practice biblical relationships within the church. And they're, they're a great tool to do this, but this, this tool, the one another's, don't capture everything that believers are to do with one another. They don't tell us how <clears throat> um, all the ways that we're supposed to relate to one another, but they are an extremely helpful tool. And so how did we come up with this one another's? How did, uh, how did I come up with the one another's? Um, if you look around and Google it, you'd probably find slightly different lists of the one another's because um, they kind of get put together a little bit differently. The way that I generated this list, oh, and in your packets, you actually have a list of the one another's um, that we're going to be stepping through. And we will actually be referring to this. So you might want to set it out. Um, and the way that, that I came up with this, you know, looking from my translation, the NAS, looking for where that one, the, the little prone, the little uh, tiny little phrase, the adjective pronoun pair, how that showed up in my uh, Bible and the Greek words behind those and where those got translated um, as one another. Uh, and in my English translation, that shows up 108 times in 101 verses in the New Testament. And there's primarily two Greek pronouns that get translated into that English phrase, one another. And some of those 101 verses uh, simply are just narrative passages explaining what's going on. Uh, in Mark 8:16. they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. That's not what we're, we're looking for is every occurrence of one another. Uh, we're wanting to actually focus on the imperatives, the commands, the expectations for believers. And so when you step down and, and start looking at those, you'll find also there are some one another's that we don't want to obey. And uh, for example, in Matthew 24, 10, betray one another. Uh, hate one another. Revelation 6, 4, slay one another. Th th those are not the ones that, we, that are for us to obey. And, and um, so when you step away from the ones that are specifically narrative passages. You step away from the ones that are not applicable to believers within the local church. Uh, the results of filtering all that list down, we get to 38 different one another's contained in 59 different verses or passages. And so on this piece of paper, you have all 38 of those, and then you have the verse references for all those different passages. And you'll notice up under, for example, love one another, there's 14 different references there. Um, and so that's why there's more passages than there are one another's. Uh, all of these different one another's can be found in two Gospels, Mark and John. They can be found in 16 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And the vast majority of these one another's are explicit commands or expectations for believers. And the vast majority of the, the vast majority of these commands are to be carried out within the local church. So look around at the people in this room. Think of your small group if you're in one. Tomorrow morning, when we're in church, look around. This is the local church that God has provided for us. These are the people that we are to be practicing 
the one another's with, to be practicing these commands with. And, and my hope, my hope and desire as we go through this lesson is to uh, provide some more familiarity with the one another's so that they stand out in scripture as we're reading and so that we'll be practicing them more effectively. Specifically, practicing them more effectively here at GBC. And so, my hope as after going through this, this is kind of the overarching theme of this entire lesson, is that the obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And since our local church is GBC, then we're to be in close biblical relationships with those here at Grace Bible Church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's within the local church, within Grace Bible Church. The one another's are essentially a manual for biblical relationships within the local church. And what we're not going to do, though, is we're not going to pit against each other passages how how believers are to interact with other believers generally how believers are to interact with non-believers um you know those passages coexist very well with all of these uh one another passages and we're going to focus on though in this lesson we're going to focus on how believers are to interact with believers within the context of the local church and we're going to use the the tool of the one another's to do so and on this handout, you'll notice that there's six different kind of major categories, and we're going to kind of step through this. We're going to cover like a couple different passages from each one, and to, to do that, we're going to ask six questions to investigate how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And so the first question that we're going to ask is, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? The primary and single most important one another is love one another. That command stands out over and above all the others. It is the umbrella that covers all of the others. All of the other one another's flow out of this one. So let's turn to our Bibles. We'll be doing this quite a bit this morning. Uh, here we're going to turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 34 and 35. However, uh, yeah, we're going to be in verses 34 and 35. And the, the context here is that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem and Jesus is in the upper room for the Last Supper. He's hours away from going to the cross, and Judas has already left. And so Jesus is providing a new commandment to his disciples. So there's the 11 there with Jesus. And in verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
I want you to see that word love. When you read that word, what, what do you guys think it means? What, what, what's the first thing that kind of comes to your mind when you think of love? One of the things that, one of the first things that often I think of when I think of love is the emotion, is the, the feelings, the warm affections that people have for, uh, that I have for people that I care about. Biblical love includes that, but it also is so much more than that. Uh, a biblical love is, that, is, is the one that uh, loves the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a, it's a selfless love. It's a self-giving love. It's a kind of love that transcends our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love. It's a verb. It's an active verb. This, this love is a love of action. And in this use of love, that action is directed toward one another. And now Jesus provides a new commandment. It's in verse uh, 34, a new commandment I give you. <clears throat> it's new because it narrows the focus of the love. It's the, it, the disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor. That's already been established in other places. Here they are to love one another. And the one another's here are those 11 disciples that are left. And so Jesus is saying, you disciples, love the disciples, love each other, love one another. And Jesus does not give this command to the crowds. He didn't give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to those 11. To the ones that he had spent three years developing very close and intimate relationships with. And those uh, disciples also developing intimate relationships with each other. And the disciples in the second part of uh, verse 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you you. The disciples are to love one another with a love that is modeled after the love that Christ had for them. What kind of love did Christ have for these disciples? His love was unconditional. His love was humble. His love was merciful. His love was gracious. His love was patient. His love was self-giving. His love was selfless. His love was sacrificial. His love was demonstrated at great cost to himself. And he loved them when they did not love him. And the context of this passage where he is literally hours away from going to the cross, he loved them knowing that they were going to abandon him. And, he, and, and they all abandoned him. And he knew that going into it. And the result of that love for one another, in verse 35, by this, by that love that you have for one another, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. 
So verse 35 is saying that all people, this is going to be the love that they share and have for one another is going to be a testimony, a witness to an unbelieving world. So this new commandment that Jesus is giving to the disciples, this is a new commandment. It's a commandment for us. It's a commandment that we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. And the result of how we love one another is going to stand as a witness to an unbelieving world that we live in. Our love for one another will draw attention to Christ. The love that we have and show for one another, and obviously the reason that we have this love for one another, is going to magnify Christ. This love is the outstanding and essential mark of the Christian. Another love one another passage is in 1 John chapter 3. Go ahead and flip on over there. First John chapter 3, verse 11. However, I'm going to start in verse 10 and go through verse 23. I'll read all of that. First John was written to local churches again, and, and likely around Ephesus. And this one another here is applicable to these local churches. And I'll start reading in verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding, abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before God, before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things which are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. In this passage, there's a number of different kind of observations in verse 10. He who does not love his brother is not of God. Our love for one another is evidence that we're believers. In verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love for each other, our love for one another, is evidence that we've been saved. 
Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ being the supreme example, that love that Christ displayed by laying down his life is an example for how we are to sacrifice for each other. Verse 17, we love one another by providing for the worldly needs of our brethren. Verse 18, we love in deed and truth. Our love has action that is supported by and with God's word. And in verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. Another love one another passage is 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. So in my Bible, it's on the very next page. <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, verses 7, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. If this is love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10, it says that he loved us when we didn't love him. We did not love him. We actually hated him and we rebelled against him. And... He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent the perfect, sinless one from heaven to earth to become human, to be born as a baby for the purpose of going to the cross to reconcile sinners to himself. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Not for his sins, not for everybody's sins, but for our sins, for his people, for his church. And he bore that wrath, that punishment for sins, for those that did not love him. And in verse 11, it says, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, Gracious, enduring, costly, providing for our greatest need, that reconciliation, and doing that which we were helpless to do. And in light of all of that, what should our love for one another look like? There needs to be others in my life here at Grace Bible Church. And I need to know what's going on in their lives so that I know how I can love them. I need to always be looking for ways to love them earnestly, constantly, consistently. My love for them needs to be selfless with godly motivations. And everything that I have, time, knowledge, energy, possessions, are the Lord's. And need to be available for one another. And it may be costly, Often it's inconvenient. It may be a sacrifice. 
But this is how God wants us to be practicing loving one another here with the Grace Bible Church. Number two, how does God want us to be practice? How does God want us to practice caring for one another? So, if you look at kind of the reference sheet underneath care, you'll find care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, pray for one another. We're going to discuss care for one another found in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you turn on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be specifically in verse 25. But I'm going to end up reading a large section of it. And the context for this verse is all of chapter 12. And here, Paul is addressing the local church at Corinth. And Paul is dealing, he's, there's much correction that he's providing to, to the Corinthian church here in this letter. And specifically here, he's dealing with division, a division in the body. They had factions over who is baptized by who. And uh, now Paul is addressing division within the church because of spiritual gifts. And Paul's focus here is on unity of believers as one body in Christ. Not as individuals, but unified for the common good. And how the different members of the body are necessary. So I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 12. I'm going to read through 12 through 26. For even as the body is one, yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow, bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that for the purpose of that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
in verse 24, it says that God has so composed the body. God composed this body so that there would be one, so that there would be no division, but that the members would have the same care for one another. Paul is contrasting the division that was going on with care for one another. And Paul provides two examples in verse 26 of this unity that we have, suffering and rejoicing. And in verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And when we look back over this past year that we've had in this church, there's been a tremendous amount of suffering that we have experienced. And we all felt that. And God, and I'm so thankful that God so composed the body to be able to care for one another and to care well for one another. And just to see how that was done and demonstrated, it was bittersweet. It was sweet to see how this body responded in that way. And it was bitter because it was tragic and sad and there was so much suffering that was going on. And yet God is the one who so composed the body to accomplish that. Uh, And the other way uh, that he provides that unity is that all the members, if one member rejoices, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And we get to see that on a, thankfully, more regular basis uh, when and we specifically call out uh, when people are getting married and when there's new babies and there's a lot of that going on. And uh, we get to have that you know, fairly often. And those are things that we get to rejoice with. And when people get jobs and when people graduate, those, things, those are things that on a smaller scale, we get to rejoice with those who rejoice. And those are things that we can uh, rejoice with together as we care for one another. God puts these different members in the body with different skills, with different resources, different seasons of life, different capacities for providing this same care for the body. We're not all in the same season of life. We're not all, we don't all have the same job. We don't all have the same resources. Uh, We don't all have the same skills. And, you know, there's God orchestrated all of that for the common good of the body. And God doesn't want division or factions. He wants us unified around caring for the body, for those that are suffering, and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. Another way that God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. And that's found in Galatians 6.2. So turn on over. And here Paul is providing this command to the local church that's found in Galatia. And we're going to read verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. 
for each one will bear his own load. This passage is dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. To bear means to carry something burdensome. Carrying something with endurance. And burden is just a heavy load that's difficult to carry. I'm currently reading through Pilgrim's Progress. I actually never read that one as a kid, so this is my first time through it. And as and when I when I read this, I'm thinking of the burden that Christian is carrying. I don't know. Probably most everybody has probably read through that book. Um, and just that burden that's hard to carry. And you know, in this passage, that burden is sin and temptation. And you know, also similarly in Pilgrim's Progress, that was the same burden that he was carrying. And believers in the local church are being called to walk with a fellow believer to help them bear that burden of sin and temptation. Ultimately on to repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens. And we need help. We need help from one another. And this is not just a pastor's job. This is not just a small group leader's job. This is all of our jobs. This is addressed at the local church. There's other places where Paul and others specifically address the elders or deacons. This is not one of those. This is addressed to the church, to one another. And we're all to be doing that. One of my former pastors said that you are either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. These are the ways that we can be practicing caring for one another. Number three, how does God want us to practice edifying one another? How does God want us to practice edifying one another? If we pull out our little reference again under edification, you'll find build up one another, admonish one another, speak truth to one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Encourage one another. Seek after that which is good for one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're going to cover build up one another, found in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So if you could turn on over to 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And this command to build up one another is given to the, Paul gives this command to the local church that is Thessalonica. We're going to read through all of, uh, not all of chapter 5. We're going to read through, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through 11. Starting in verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not in night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do 
But let us be alert and sober. For those who, are, who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, because of all that, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Paul here is dealing with the day of the Lord. These believers had questions and concerns about when the day of the Lord was going to take place. So Paul proceeds to build them up. He explains truth about believers. He explains that they're not in darkness. They're not overtaken. They're not destined for wrath. They're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light, sons of the day. These are grace realities that are applicable to believers. And he is building them up with that. And because of those grace realities, believers, unbelievers, are destined for wrath. Believers are not destined for wrath. And he gives the, the command then to encourage and build up one another. And Paul, in that command, was actually demonstrating what he was commanding them to do. Paul was building up these believers with truth. He was demonstrating that right there in the passage. And this building up that Paul is commanding, this encouraging that Paul is commanding, is this assumes that we are in close communication with believers. It assumes that we're spending time with them so that there is that opportunity to build them up, so that we know them and that we can build them up. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. Admonish one another. And that's found in Romans 15, verse 14. Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nuthateo which may seem familiar, as some of you have heard of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling, that's where that comes from. And this simply means to counsel about avoiding or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It means to admonish, to warn, to instruct. But this instruction is not simply for knowledge's sake. Its instruction is with a purpose of having someone avoid or cease doing something. And this is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to cease or something that they need to avoid. And we are to do this with one another. And Paul here is affirming these believers are able to do this. They're able to do this with one another. All believers, 
bear this responsibility to admonish one another. Again, this is not something that's just for pastors, elders. This is not something for just small group leaders. This is something that Paul, God, has commanded that believers are to do with one another. And we're all commanded to do this. And Paul affirms here that these believers were well-equipped to do so. And so are we. If you're a believer, you objectively have the Spirit of God dwelling and living within you. You have new eyes to understand rightly God's Word. You're well-equipped to step into the life of someone and to help them uh, and to admonish them, to warn them uh, about something, something that is dangerous for them. And likely, when we think of the one another's, we like to encourage one another. We don't typically like to admonish one another. Uh, we don't typically like confrontation. But if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what is the most loving thing that we can do for them? We can shed light on that sin. And we can lovingly admonish them for it. Those are ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. Number four, how does God want us to be humble with one another? If you pull out the reference again under humility, give preference to one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Confess your sins to one another. Be humble toward one another. We're going to start with give preference to one another, found in Romans 12, verse 10. Romans 12, verse 10. And this command is given to believers at the Church of Rome. And this section of Romans has some 25 different exhortations for believers. And this section that our verse is in deals specifically with family relationships, specifically within the family of God. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another. So the second part of that, give preference to one another in honor. Other translations may say outdo one another in showing honor. This give preference or outdo means to do with eagerness, to do exceedingly, lead the way, go before, precede, to prefer. Honor simply means what you would think it means, high respect, high esteem. And I think the, the MacArthur Study Bible kind of captures this pretty well. It says to show genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. We are to go before. We are to be proactive so that we can give honor. Showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We need to be quick to show respect. Quick to show admiration. Quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. Quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious? What would be an obstacle to us being quick to do those things? 
why would we not be doing those or why would those not be things that would come naturally to us first? Be my pride? I'm thinking of myself first. I hear somebody else's accomplishments and what's my first thought? It's like, well, I did or I didn't or I'm jealous that you did. or you know, It might not come out of my mouth, but it sure is it's in my brain. Um, and, and it takes humility to get outside of ourselves to recognize someone else, to give preference to them, to, to proceed and go before them, to give them honor. And it takes humility to do that just to get outside of ourselves at all, let alone to, to see them first. And, but that, that's what we're called to do. Um, we need to be mortifying our pride and cultivating humility. Uh, and that typically needs to be something done on a daily basis. And that's how God wants us to do that, uh, live that out with one another. And another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another. This is found in James fifteen sixteen. James chapter 5. I was not inventing a new chapter. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess means to make an admission of wrongdoing or sin simply means to confess, to admit. And we are commanded to do this continually with one another. Confess your sins to one another. This is not something that we desire to do. What is sin what is sin desire? Sin sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay private. Sin wants to stay secret. We don't often even want to acknowledge it ourselves that it's really sin. Sin is deceptive. And when you mix our pride in with all of that, the last thing we want to do is actually tell somebody about it. And that is uh, what we do. We often want to run from it rather than confess it. But what does God want done with my sin? God wants my sin and he wants your sin exposed. And he wants it done in the loving fellowship of other believers. And I'm so thankful that that's the way that he wants our sin exposed is in loving fellowship of believers. And God is not quick to expose it to the world. And, and the way that God has cared for his church by prescribing uh, the discipline process in Matthew 18, you know, it starts with one-on-one and then it slowly grows uh, and increases the number of people who are aware. That's a kindness that God provides for the purpose of giving repentance, or allowing repentance and providing restoration. God just didn't say, hey, if you screwed up there, boom, the whole church knows about it um, or the whole world. Uh, there may be some sins that have those kinds of consequences, but that's not the way that God wants it to generally be exposed. And and yet, at the same time, he will expose your sin. Um, 
he, your sin will not stay secret forever. And uh, the Lord knows all of our, he knows our hearts, our minds, he knows everything. And uh, so we are, this is one of those ways that we get to practice being humble with one another is to confess our sins to one another in the loving fellowship of other believers here at Grace Bible Church. Number five, how does God want us to practice serving one another? If we go to the sheet again, under service, there's serve one another, be hospitable to one another, wash one another's feet. We're actually going to cover that one. Uh, but the first one we're going to talk about is serve one another. And we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. First Peter chapter four verse ten. We're actually I'm going to read through verses eight through eleven. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever is to Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve one another. Serve that word for serve, diakoneo, is the same word that we get where we get the word deacon from. And as a personal service, it's the discharge of a loving service. In Greek culture, this word had the meaning, meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, service was looked down upon as undignified. A common phrase that they would use is we are born to rule not serve <coughs> our service to one another is out of a love for one another and it can be very humbling it can be very exhausting as we serve one another pouring ourselves out for one another we're serving, as verse 11 says, by the strength which God supplies. And for the purpose that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As we pour ourselves out for each other, as we're serving, as it's inconvenient, as it's exhausting, we're not doing it in our own strength. We're doing it by the strength which God supplies. And it's also for the purpose that God would be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. Our, our goal is not attention to ourselves. Our goal is that Christ would be magnified. And our loving service to and for one another 
is all about the other person. It's not about what I get out of it. It's about them. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is wash one another's feet. Found in John chapter 13. I have a bucket of water and a rag in the back so we can practice that one when we're done. John chapter 13, verse 14. The context here again, we're back in the upper room with Jesus uh, and his disciples, but this is before Judas left. So Judas is there. All 12 of them are there. And I'm actually going to read verses 3 through 16. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and Simon said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, what I do, you do not yet realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Back then, the common mode of transportation would have been to walk. And the common thing you would have had on your feet would have been sandals. And there was a lot of dirt. The dust could have been an inch thick. It was common to have it be an inch thick of dust. Um, and so when you're walking, your feet are just getting dirty. And what would happen if it rained? It'd be a lot of mud. And so it was commonly, if you went anywhere, you're, you would have very dirty feet. And at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that as one was coming in, they could wash their feet. For a slave, this was the most menial task that they were given, was to wash the feet of all the guests that were coming and when Jesus and his disciples arrived at the upper room, there was no slave to wash their feet. One of the twelve should have, could have offered to do it, but the twelve, from 
Luke chapter 22 tells us that the 12 were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Kind of a good contrast. They were too busy being selfish, thinking about their perceived greatness, to see the humble service that needed to be done. So Jesus, the God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who had already humbled himself by coming to earth, took a step even lower. Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service that the disciples were to do in like manner with each other. This demonstrated that no service was too humble for for Christ to actually do for the others. And we're to get low and to follow the Lord's example of service to one another. We don't exactly have the same dirty feet problem that they had back then, but there are plenty of menial tasks, humble tasks, that we can serve one another with. I think of... uh, different tasks where people, some of the ones off the top of my head, or one of the ones off the top of my head, where somebody's got issues, whether it be an injury or a death in the family, where they need their home cleaned. And there are people that go over and they do that, and they walk away, and nobody even knows they did it. That, that's a humble service to go and to, to clean somebody else's home, um, and nobody's even going to know about it, but the Lord does. Uh, that, that is a, those, there's plenty of things like that, or services that need to be done for people that... Uh, that are menial um, tasks that just need to be done, and they're humble. And those are ways that God wants us to practice serving one another. In uh, number six, how does God want us to practice being unified with one another? So there's a very long list under unity. Be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. Do not consume one another. Let us not challenge one another. Let us not envy one another. Show tolerance for one another. Bear with one another. Do not lie to one another. Live in peace with one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. Fellowship with one another. The first one we're going to cover is be devoted to one another. This one is found again in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Go ahead and flip back over there. First part of verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations say love, uh, but this isn't the same love that we've been talking about. The, the Greek word behind devoted means the natural love that occurs within the family, the kindred love, the warm affections. It could be translated lovingly loving. And the, the Greek word behind brotherly love is a word that I know everybody here is familiar with. Philadelphia. That word literally means love for brother or sister, 
blood relative, a blood relative. So it's talking about the familial familial relationship. And it's that affection, that tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections that we have for our family, for our blood relatives. If you put all of that together, you'll get a translation that no English translation is going to have. Be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. So that's a lot of love. Um, Yeah. Be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. Believers are to be devoted to each other. Having affections and love for each other that are reserved for that intimate family unit. For immediate family, for brothers and sisters, for parents and children. And here Paul applies that family love to Christians. Believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one father and we are all children of God. And so we are a family in Christ. And there are things that I will do and say to a close family member that I wouldn't just say to a friend or a coworker. How much unity are we to have within the family? How much unity do we have within the family unit? Um, and how much unity do we have within the, the family unit that God has put us in, that God has ordained? Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. That, that's the relationship that we have with one another within the local church. God's raising the importance. I mean, we have just the, the fact that we have uh, families and parents, children, grandparents, and all those kind of familial relationships. God is saying, even though we are... Oh, okay. and god is showing that you know the relationships that we have here they are significant they're on par with those relationships and the way that we love in those relationships is the way that we're actually to, to love each other here and we're commanded to have those warm familial affections for one another here at Grace Bible Church. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is not to let us not judge one another. This is found in 14, 13, Romans 14, 13. And the context here is all of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is dealing with conscience. And I'm going to actually start reading in verse 1 and go through verse 13. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in verse 13, therefore, given all of that, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul is addressing in this chapter. One is dealing with food, and the other is dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than another. There's weak believers and there's strong believers. Strong believers have an attitude of contemptuous superiority. The weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command, after laying that out, Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These issues that are going back and forth here are in the area of Christian liberty and practice. These are neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture. They are personal preference and historic tradition. They are not doctrinal or moral compromise. God has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. If God himself does not make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to do so? The two issues, you know, whether somebody eats meat and vegetables or just vegetables, whether somebody uh, says this day is more important than others, God doesn't tell us those different details and doesn't give us commands. So there's preference there. There's, there's uh, Christian liberty there. And yet these believers were taking it a little bit too far and they were judging uh, their, their fellow believers in those areas. And God specifically says, Who are you to judge the servant of the other? If God has accepted that person, if God doesn't call that person a sinner, why would we? Why would we hold a preference so tightly that it's a conviction? That it's, we're treating it as though it were a principle. Now that doesn't mean that we don't discuss our preferences. We all have preferences. We all have opinions about everything. But we don't hold our preferences as though they were principles. And we don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. We don't regard them with contempt. 
That's another way that we can be practicing being unified with one another is to not judge each other's preferences. We've investigated six questions how God wants us to practice these biblical relationships within the local church, within Grace Bible Church. I have a few more questions to ask. Given what we've just kind of surveyed and walked through, can one be obedient to Scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one be obedient to Scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's Day, on our Sunday worship service? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's Day? We live in America, and this country is very consumeristic. We're impacted by it. We can't get away from it. It's going to affect us. That view is going to come into the church. And it can be common to only focus on what I get out of a relationship, what I get out of a Bible study, what I get out of a small group gathering, what I get out of a worship service. I view how well something is going or has gone based only on what I felt I got out of it. This is a view of relationships within the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers here at Grace Bible Church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is going to be the practice of the one another's with the people here at Grace Bible Church. And here at Grace, the primary vehicle that we have for practicing these biblical relationships is small groups. We have, you know, we gather together for a corporate worship service on Sunday, and then we all spread across this entire valley, right? It's not like we all live in some little town of 200 people and we get to, you know, everywhere we go, we're bumping into everybody and living life with everybody. No, we go tens and, uh, you know, 50 miles away from each other in this valley. And we have to be purposeful to set up a structured time so that we can actually get together and rub up against one another. And the way that the elders here have determined that we want to try to accomplish that is by having small groups. And so small groups are where we're going to take a subset of the body and we're all going to get together on a specific evening, morning, whatever time of day, 
and we're going to get them together so that we can focus on and practice and live out these one another's and that's going to be a smaller group of people that I can have close intimate relationships with so that I can know them know how to build them up encourage them admonish them serve them care for them all those kinds of different things because you're not going to be able to do that for the whole body we're not going to be able to do that for the whole body and so that's how the elders have tried to accomplish that is by coming up with small groups and, and so that we can be in relationships to do that and I am super thankful that God has so composed the body to put us in relationships with one another. I'm so thankful that he's provided so much instruction for how we are to carry out that, those relationships. I'm so thankful for the believers here at Grace Bible Church that I have close relationships with, that speak into my life, that serve me, that help me, that encourage me, that build me up, and that I have opportunities to do the same with them. If you've been here for any amount of time, I'm sure you've experienced the love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity of your fellow believers here at Grace. So hopefully I was able to provide some familiarity with these one another's so that they stand out in scripture so that we can be practicing them or practicing them more effectively uh, within the body, within Grace. And uh, let's go ahead and pray. God, I'm thankful for this time that we've had to be equipped with your word to survey the different commands that you give to us, the commands that you give to us to, to carry out with one another, to carry out with one another here within the local church, within Grace Bible Church. Lord, I pray that we would carry these commands, practice these commands well, that we would look for opportunity and that you would provide opportunity for us to do these well. Lord, I pray for my own heart, for our hearts as we seek to do this, that uh, we would humbly look to others, that we would not be looking to ourselves. And Lord, I know left to my own flesh, that is what will come out. I will look at self first. I will look at my own time, my inconveniences, my what I might have to do to sacrifice. Lord, uh, I need help to do that well, and I know it's going to be by the strength that you supply, and I pray that your spirit would help me to put myself to death so that I can see others and serve others and care for others. Lord, we, we need you to do that work in us, and I, I pray that you would do that. And uh, Jesus, it's all so that you would get the glory in all things, so that your name and your testimony and your witness would be carried to an unbelieving world. And Jesus, we want to see your name magnified. It is always in your great name we pray. Amen. If you guys have any questions or anything, feel free to come to talk to me now, tomorrow. Well, you guys are going to break up, so maybe not now. But Or tomorrow morning or whatever, send me an email, anything. Great. Thanks.